Well, let's take our copy of God's Word and find our way to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 will continue in the section that we've begun in the last few weeks on Paul's, really his outline for how to change. It's a biblical process of, of change, how we change from being an old man, the old person that we were, to the new man and the new person that God calls us to be. And we've entitled this section a summons for a new life. Begin it last week. We'll add another verse to it this week, and we'll continue on in our next study. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me begin by getting some context in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Think with me just for a moment about the vast capacity of the human mind, the human brain. Your brain has up to 14 billion cells. That's with a B, 14 billion cells. And these are only a shadow of the complexity of your brain. Every single cell, 14 billion cells, are you ready for this? Sends out thousands of connected tendrils so that every individual cell may be connected with a neighboring 10,000 cells. 4 billion times 10,000 connections. And you can see why the human brain is an unparalleled computer. The human brain has been compared to 1,000 switchboards, each big enough to serve New York City, all running at full speed at the same time as they give and receive questions and orders and signals. Let me put it another way. There's more electronic connectivity in one human brain than all the radio and television stations in the entire world put together. I'm moved by what Kent Hughes says, quote, Our brains do not miss a thing. They're capable of giving and receiving the subtlest input from imagining a universe in which time bends to creating the polyphonic texture of a Bach fugue are transmitting or receiving a message from God himself. Feats no computer will ever accomplish, end quote. We could talk a long time, day and night, about the staggering potential of the human brain. But the greatest possibility of a human mind, the greatest possibility a brain can ever conceive or do is this. Pondering the thought of the living God. Even more stunning is that God grants to believers the ability to think categorically like, are you ready for this? Like his son. 
A stunning verse in 1 Corinthians 2.6. Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. But since we're still living in human flesh, our minds constantly must be renewed. Our minds are in ever constant need of recalibration. Literally, they need to be reprogrammed like you would a computer. But no computer will ever be able to think the thoughts of God. No device will ever be able to know the heart of God or do his works like a human mind. Yet that mysterious gray matter that rests right now between your ears has that capacity to hear God, to speak to him, and to do his bidding. One more step. That's what your minds were created for, was interaction with your creator, with the living God. We've been studying the fourth chapter of Ephesians in which Paul lays out for us Christ's expectations of what a believer's life is to be like after conversion. And we've said that he expects change, radical change, massive differential change between pre-conversion and Christian conversion. Ephesians 4.17, in the context here, I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, which is a euphemism for live, that you live or walk no longer as the Gentiles, unbelievers live or walk, that you change. And then in 4.22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside that old self. This is a summons for a new way of living, a new life after conversion. Jesus is far too amazing. Jesus is far too real as our resurrected Lord. He's far too powerful to come into a person's life and there not be massive seismic change. But the Apostle Paul does not leave you and me to speculate as to how to change. I mean, it would be enough. You would think, say, you need to be different. You need to be, you need to be changed. Okay, that's... That's helpful, but what does that mean and how do I do it? These verses in front of us are, are, are a stunning, stunning example of biblical wisdom. In three verses, you have a whole biblical pattern for change. Three verses. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, but it does mean it's simple. Change goes by a few synonyms in the New Testament. We looked at this deeply last week. Uh, change is sometimes called repentance. You change your mind and your, your actions. Change is sometimes called sanctification, which is a big word for becoming holy. And we'll look deeply into that in our next verse. We're called to be holy and righteous. Repentance, sanctification, the biblical process of change, all interchangeable in the New Testament. In this illustration, as in Colossians and in Romans, Paul uses the idea of the illustration of changing clothes, putting off and putting on. You're, you're putting off an old self like you would changing clothes, and you're putting on a new set of clothes like you would something that you newly purchased. The old self is characterized by the process we all understand of sin. The new self is characterized by holiness and righteousness. Now, in order to understand what Paul is doing here, we've we, we got to get a, a contextual kind of read on this. And as we study over and over, the context matters so much. The, this context, the whole preceding and post section of the verse we'll be looking at today, is 
filled, it's saturated with the language of thinking, of mental imagery, how we think, what we think, why we think. Just look for a moment at verses 17 to 19. So this is speaking about our, our, our life before Christ, but listen to the, we call them noetic from the Greek word from, for thinking, noetic effects of the fall. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, another thinking word, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance, a third thinking word that is in them because of the hardness of their heart, which is yet another thinking illustration. I told you my mentor, Dr. George Zimmick, Use the illustration as I was in seminary over and over and over that your heart is mission control central. It's your thinking and deciding residence. Verse 19, they have become callous, having or having, have given themselves over, have given themselves over. That's a deliberate choice. That's another thinking word. Add to that verse 20, you did not learn another thinking word, Christ. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him, that's learning something, been taught in him, that's thinking, just as truth, that's a mental concept, is in Jesus. And now in verse 22, that you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Christianity then is fundamentally a change of thinking about Christ and then a a change of thinking because of Christ. Let me say that again. Fundamentally, Christianity is a change of thinking about Christ and then a change of thinking because of Christ. That's what really causes a person to change is Christ. We studied a few weeks ago, this the, the terrible Greek grammar and terrible English grammar that is really good theology. Only place in the New Testament where it says this. In verse 20, in contrast to living as an unbeliever, he says, verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. He doesn't say you did not learn how to serve Christ, worship Christ, honor Christ, sing to Christ. He just says you didn't learn Christ. In other words, Christ is the curriculum for the Christian faith. And that's the focus of our thinking. That's what causes a person to change. He is what causes a person to change. Change from what? Well, thinking Christianly, if we can call it that, is not merely thinking about Christian subjects or about Christian theology. It's thinking with Christianity as your filter, as your grid, as your lens for interpretation and understanding. Unbelievers can think about Christian subjects in a secular way, but only Christians can think Christianly. Left to our own, we we grow up with a mind that is anti-God and our worldview comes from being dead in our trespasses and sins, two, chapter 2, verse 1 told us. Here's some categories that we just automatically adopt. These aren't things we typically learn. These are, these are things that are automatically our, our worldview, secularism. In other words, what we see is all there is, or no one plus nothing equals everything. That's genius. God is seen as an unnecessary part to this world. Therefore, God is irrelevant. That's secularism. That leads to humanism, which is elevating self and humanity to be God or to not need God. In humanism, God is extraneous to man's intellect and man's abilities, which leads to hedonism, 
which means personal pleasure, is the goal of life, the catalyst of all decision-making. In the hedonism, God is viewed as a cosmic killjoy who is in the way of enjoying what you really want because he tells you not to sin and prevents you from joy and happiness. Then there's relativism. No moral absolutes. God and his word, the Bible, are seen as an option among many others when it comes to moral choices and the least of those options because they don't lead to those hedonistic enjoyments. Materialism, another worldview that we're born with, the value that life and its values comes to you and what you have, you possess, your materialistic possessions. God is viewed as a means to the end of getting what you want, and God is less important than the things you want. And if God doesn't get you what you want materialistically, materialistically, he's not worth pursuing. Put all of that in the blender and it comes out with skepticism which is the nature of our generation today. Skepticism is a contrarian view of anything that's authoritative. The existence of God is viewed with suspicion. The character of God is viewed with suspicion. And the word of God is viewed with suspicion. That's a modern description of what we learn about our pre-conversion hearts and state in verses 17 to 19. But here... In Ephesians 4.23, we'll return our attention now. Paul gives us the key to changing from these ways of thinking to thinking Christianly. It's always a little dangerous. I'm always a little hesitant to say, this is the key to the Christian life. But guess what? This is the key to the Christian life. <laughs> it really is. You will never be different if you don't learn to think differently. You will never think like a Christian and act like a Christian unless you change the mode and the method of thinking. And that's exactly what Paul tells us here. Now, just a very quick reminder of what we've been studying and where we are. These are three simple verses that outline the biblical process of change, three parts of God's plan for genuine change. Verse 23 is forsaking your past. We looked at that last week. And that includes, we, we looked at the context and looked at some scriptures and between Paul's words to the Colossians and Paul's words to the Romans and, and the Ephesians. And it means to personalize your sin, identify your sin, unmask your sin, own your sin, hate your sin, confess your sin, stop your sin. And then in the next two weeks, we'll see rethink and replace it. Today is learning how to rethink. Today is transforming your mind. We're just going to look at number two in our little process of change. And then our next study will be consecrating your life which is the pursuit of sanctification and repentance and holiness. But for today, let's look simply at that number two, transforming your mind. How, how do you transform your mind? How do you change your thinking? If that's the key to the Christian life, big statement, how do you do it? Look at the verse again. Well, let's pick up from verse 22. Last week, we looked at this. In reference to your former manner of life, the old self, Walking as a Gentile walked, walking as an unbeliever walked, not walking, verse 1, as uh, someone worthy of the Lord and worthy of his calling. In reference to the way you used to be, your former manner of life, you lay aside that person, that old self, which is being corrupted by lies of desire, lust of deceit. Then in verse 24, he says, put on the new self. And the characteristic of the new self, characteristics, I should say, of the new self are righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
And in between putting off and putting on, he gives us the key, which is think differently. And that you be renewed, repaired in the spirit of your mind. Why can we say it's the key to the Christian life? Because if we're to be renewed, which is repentance, sanctification, growth in Christ, if we're to be renewed, and Paul tells us in the middle of that admonition, you do so in the spirit of your mind, we know the on-ramp for change is a change in thinking. I love this verb, renewed. It means to be restored or repaired. You don't repair things that aren't broken. Your mind is broken, folks. So is mine. And sometimes we think in what's, unfortunately, it goes back to Thomas Aquinas, Thomistic ways where we think, well, the fall of man was was pervasive and it, it hit our sinful inclinations, but man is not totally depraved. He still can choose between God and Satan, right and wrong, good and bad. Paul says, no. You're not standing neutral. No one stands neutral. We are born with broken minds and broken hearts and sinful dispositions. No one has to teach a child to become a sinner. They come that way. You say, how is it renewed, though? That's an interesting word, renew. Because to renew sounds like you were new, and now you to be like you were, renewed. Seems impossible since we never had a Christian mind in the first place. I think what Paul has in mind here, though, is the ideal that God had for man in Adam before the fall. That's the renew. Going back to our best state, which was Adam's original state. He desired for our minds to be renewed, to be like God intended them to be from the beginning. To have minds that center on Him, minds that value Him, minds that enjoy Him, minds that fellowship with Him, minds that act in response to Him, minds that are satisfied in Him. But He tells us to be renewed in the spirit, the spirit of our minds. Now, I I just got to tell you, sometimes studying for a sermon is like uh, trying to arbitrate uh, a debate. Uh, there was so much ink spilt on, on this in, in studying this passage about what is the Spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it your disposition, just your, your inner being? Because that word pneuma is used both ways in the New Testament. So what does it mean here? In the Holy Spirit part of your mind or in the you part of your mind? Or your, what, what does that mean? Well, even though there's, even though there's considerable debate... I, I think Paul answers it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just listen if you want. Verse 9, he says, Just as it is written, the things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He's talking about how a man can absorb the things of God and the revelation of God. For those, excuse me, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? That's his Spirit, his disposition. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Back to the Holy Spirit. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world. Now we have a third Spirit. That's the worldview that we were talking about, the old man, the the. the 
the, uh, the, the, not, the secularized worldview. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, Holy Spirit, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, things in which we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts, those are our thoughts from a, a human perspective, ascribing God's thoughts to our thinking with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritually he who is spiritually appraises, spiritual appraises all things. So he who is spiritual. What is he who is spiritual? That's a man whose spirit has now been impacted by the Holy Spirit and is in the process of change. That, I think, is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have, now we have it, the mind of Christ. So when Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, I think when you look at the first two and a half chapters, three and a half chapters of, of Ephesians, he's saying, your mind needs to be changed, which has been impacted by the spirit, will be changed by the spirit, but it's also part of you. This is what we call synergistic sanctification. We cooperate with the Lord in our own holiness and righteousness pursuit, which we'll see in the next verse. God doesn't, when we come to Christ, zap you and say, holy and righteous, no need for change, right? We actually add effort to our own sanctification. We, we don't add effort to our justification. We do add effort to our becoming holy and sanctification, and we cooperate with God. So when a person becomes a Christian, they have faith in Christ, God gives them a wholly new spiritual and moral perspective that an unbelieving mind apart from Christ could never have. But it still needs to be improved. And that's the spirit of our minds that's being addressed here. So let me put the whole sermon into a sentence, can I? Renewing your mind means learning to see everything as God sees everything and responding in holiness and righteousness. Again, that's the next verse. Renewing your mind means learning to see everything. There's your worldview. There's your lens. See everything as God sees everything and responding in holiness and righteousness. So what does that mean practically? How do we do that? How do you renew your mind? Paul tells us that we should be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That includes us doing something about that. What do we do? How do we change that? What does it practically mean? I think the context helps us to understand this. I don't think we're left to guessing. This is a very clear process that's actually outlined in what we call the logic of negation. Now, work with me here for a second. When, when Paul describes the old man as who we're not supposed to be, to not be that, he is telling us, be something else. So when he says, renew your mind, he's saying, don't be like you were, be like I'm calling you to be. In other words, he will outline the features of a renewed mind by showing us the features of an unrenewed mind and finding the opposite. That'll make sense 
as we go through it. So I'm going to give you, I think it's seven features of a renewed mind right here from the context, okay? The first is purposeful thinking. Purposeful thinking. What does it mean to renew your mind? Well, we can find out what the old person we're supposed to change from is and find the opposite. Purposeful thinking. Look back to verse 17. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, you live no longer as the Gentiles live or walk in the uselessness, purposelessness, futility of their mind. So if we're supposed to change from that, we should change from our mind being futile to our mind being the opposite, which is purposeful. You understand what, what we're doing there? Looking at the negation. Purposeful thinking. How do you have purposeful thinking? How do you have repentance from the futility of your mind? Futility futility means useless, purposelessness. Not eternally valuable thinking. Well, um, this is another read your Bible sermon. (laughs) Because you can't change your mind into spiritual thinking intuitively. You can't change your mind into biblical thinking without the Bible. Reading the Bible, believing the Bible, understanding and applying the Bible, Scripture. A believer will find purposeful thinking by reading God's words in God's Word. God, through His Word, has given us understanding of life that has meaning and purpose in a broken world gone mad. Listen, we have to go back to the fact that our minds are broken. They're not just broken, they're recalcitrant, they're sinful. They need repairing and renewing and fixing. And the only way to do that is expose our thinking and our mind to God's thinking and God's mind, which is revealed in God's God's Word. Very simple. Not easy. Simple. Purposeful thinking. That lets us know about time and eternity, heaven and hell, selfishness and selflessness, service versus being served, dying to self, humility, having a purposeful life. If we don't live life According to God's purpose, we'll live it according to our own, or maybe even worse, according to someone else's for us. Purposeful thinking, right out of the antithesis of verse 17. Secondly, second feature of the renewed, not renewed mind would be enlightened thinking. And this comes from verse 18, talking about our old self being darkened in their understanding. So if we're supposed to change from being darkened in our understanding, the opposite of that is to be enlightened in our understanding or our thinking, enlightened thinking. As we studied a few weeks ago, darkened in their understanding means darkened in two ways. It means without light, without revelation, without God's perspective, but it also means with dark, sinful intentions. It has a, a very dark reality to it. It's a sinful attraction. Now, so many times in, in studying Paul, he will, he'll plant an acorn here that he grows into an oak later. He did that in Romans over and over and over. And we would have to look ahead a little bit. He does that here because he just kind of throws this being darkened in their understanding, which means we need to be enlightened. But he comes back to explain that fully in chapter five. Can we peek? He 
You think we'll get in trouble with Paul if we peek? Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We met the sons of disobedience in chapter 2, verse 1. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, that's sinners, that's pre-Christian lives. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, unbelievers. For you, verse 8, were formerly darkness. There it is. But now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. This is amazing. He says darkened in their understanding, but now he doesn't say darkened in their understanding. He says dark and light. You were dark, now you're light. Walk then, live as a child of light. And when we get there, we'll study the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. You're walking with Christ. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Sounds like the next verse for our next study. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't miss the fact that all sanctification is personal. We studied this last week. It's not abstract being right and not wrong, being holy and not unholy. It's, it's pleasing the Lord himself. Do, do you see the... Very clear attribution that Jesus is alive in that, the resurrection, pleasing the Lord. It doesn't say, please the guy who died and is in a grave. He's alive, pleasing the Lord. He goes on, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Now we're finding the lifestyle, but even instead, instead expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light or exposed. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. See the light imagery? Therefore, be careful how you live, how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. See that polarity? Be careful how you live being wise. Your thinking controls your actions, your living. That's the pattern. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will, the desire of the Lord is. We're walking enlightened. We know what the Lord, Lord's will is. We know what He wants. We've been enlightened. Why? We have the revelation of God. We see a graphic picture of this dark understanding in the reasons given for the worldwide flood of Genesis 6, Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's the nature of an unbelieving heart. It's darkness. That's the depth and breadth of sin in our hearts. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil evil continually. A renewed mind hates the sinful inclinations of our old man. It hates the sinful inclinations of our old thinking. It recognizes them and seeks to shed them. And we looked at that in great detail last week. Instead, the scriptures give us a better way of thinking, a biblical way of living that understands right from wrong with God himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our focus, as the reason not just abstract behavior modification, but responding to the living, resurrected Savior. Enlightened. That leads to a third feature of 
this renewed mind, purposeful thinking, enlightened thinking, informed thinking. We get this from the middle of verse 18, speaking again of the unbelieving life, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. What's the opposite of being ignorant? Being informed. We're not ignorant, we're informed. We understand the gospel, the plan of God for salvation and and relationship with him. We understand the nature of our sinfulness. We understand the need for growth and holiness and righteousness and sanctification. We're not uninformed. We're not ignorant. We've talked about this many times, but it bears repeating at this point. What you know, what you believe is essential for who you are, who you're becoming, and how you grow. Romans 2, we exult, we hope, we we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's heaven. And not only this, we have the same word. We, We exult, we hope, we rejoice in our tribulations. Just such a strange thing that he would say, we rejoice in our tribulations. How do we do that? The next word, knowing. Knowing, and then he gives a list of, of, uh, of things that we know. Tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. Hope doesn't disappoint. We can handle difficulty because we know something. We know who God is, what God's doing, that God is doing something. And what we know is different than being ignorant of those things. James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Next word, knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And we've said over and over, over a little, little self-counseling you can do with your own heart when you have a difficulty is ask three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? I usually feel sad, angry, disappointed, upset, um, scared, have anxiety. What do I think? If our thinking is controlled by our feelings, we're going to be a mess. That doesn't end well. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I, what do I know? What do I believe? That's the solving and solution of the ignorance that was ours as an unbeliever. We know. We know what God is doing. We have a clue about God caring and loving. We know his character, that he is good and that he does good. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, We're not suspicious of his character. We know our ignorance is evaporated with what we know from Scripture. You see the Read Your Bible sermon more leaking out? Albert Leckie writes, Being renewed in the spirit of your mind means the old man goes on corrupting itself, but the child of God goes on being renewed in the spirit of his mind, becoming a new person in the spirit of his mind in contrast to the vanity of your mind, unbelieving mind. The spirit of the mind is in contrast to what might be purely emotional, end quote. What do I feel? That's the emotions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Then what we know controls how we think, and then that keeps our feelings in check. It might not always change our feelings, but we'll certainly know how to control them. So we usually, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? We have to get to the point where what do I know, which is the solution to my ignorance, controls what I think, how I think, which will then mitigate how I feel. 
What we know then is the solution for the ignorance that pervades an unbeliever's thinking. In the parallel passage in Colossians 3, Paul says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices, have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A true knowledge. Paul says to the Colossians the same thing I think he's implying here that we solve unbelieving ignorance with biblical information and knowledge. It's not sterile. It's not academic. It's not abstract. It's knowing God and Christ himself, which invades our values, informed thinking. Fourth is receptive thinking, receptive. End of verse 18, because of the hardness of their heart, he describes an unbeliever's heart as hard, Hard means in the scriptures, unreceptive. We read this morning in Psalm 95, which is also in, in Hebrews, uh, that the children of Israel had hard hearts. That means they weren't being receptive to truth. They were resistant to it. The opposite of hard is soft, receptive. And in this illustration, hardness and softness has to do with resistance and receptivity to God through his word. Oh, I love the, the prophecy that Ezekiel gave us about the new covenant, about Christians, the coming of the new covenant, the gospel. He quotes God in Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will, the new covenant, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of, what is it? Stone, hard. And will give you a heart of flesh from hard to soft, from cold and callous to real and living. Being receptive in your heart and mind means you're humble and you're teachable. Unbelievers have a hardness of heart. They're resistant to the impact of God's truth, God's word, God's people. And instead, they become receptive, soft, teachable, pliable. You know, I, I've thought a lot recently with some dear fellow pastors, and we're saying, what are you looking for most in a younger man who's going into ministry? Great question, isn't it? You can say holiness, righteousness, all that's, those are great answers. But we kind of agreed in concluding the most valuable asset a young man could ever have going into ministry, and can I also say a young woman or anybody who wants to be godly? is that they're teachable. They don't have a hard heart. If you're teachable, there's no end to how you can grow. If you're resistant and have a hard heart, that's going to find irritation and rubbing with God's counsel and His Word. Receptive thinking. And again, you see what we're doing. We're, we're getting what we're supposed to be right out of what we're not supposed to be, right? It's Next, strategic thinking. Purposeful thinking, enlightened thinking, informed thinking, receptive thinking, strategic thinking. Verse 19, and they, unbelievers, have becoming, having become callous, have, look at this deliberate strategy, have given themselves over to, they're not victims, they have given themselves over to their sins. Romans 1 says they, they turn themselves over, they keep giving themselves over. And then God gives, themself, gives them over in their pursuit of sin. 
They are strategically figuring out how they can pursue and enjoy sin in mind and in body. The key phrase here, having given themselves intentional act with an actor and an action. It involves intentionality, deliberation, and strategizing. The opposite of that, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. It doesn't say put on holiness or righteousness. Put him on and make no provision or strategy, make no strategy for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Isn't that simple? Not easy, but simple. Put on Jesus. That, let that be your strategy Don't put on the flesh or have strategy for pursuing sin and the flesh in regards to its strong desires or its lust. Are you thinking and living on purpose is the question. Or just moment by moment with no plan for who you're becoming. They gave themselves over to sin. Are we giving ourselves over to Christ? Deliberately, intentionally, strategically. Each one of these points almost deserves an entire study. You had to know letter F was coming. Christ-centered thinking. We're looking at what it means to have our minds renewed. We looked at the negation. Now look at, he gets positive in, in this, verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. We're not pursuing behavior modification, but a vital living relationship with the living, resurrected Lord Jesus. It doesn't make sense to say you did not learn a person unless you know who that person is. And then it makes theological and practical wonderful sense, doesn't it? You learn Christ. What does that mean? You read the Gospels, you read the Epistles, you read the Old Testament that predicts and prepares for him. And you say, what is he like? What did he do? What did he teach? What does he say? Why does it matter? We learn Christ. We're not just simply pursuing having a social alternative to the world or behavior modification. Jesus is our reference for everything. Everything we think, everything we decide is in reference to him. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I won't leave you as orphans. What kind of game changer is it if we envision that Jesus Christ is standing or sitting beside us in everything we think and everything we do all the time, every day, every hour, every moment? Because you know what? He is. He is. And it matters. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Jesus said this, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Eternal life consists of knowing him. Walter Layfield says it like this. To express it in retrospect from the perspective of the church, the central truth of Christianity, listen to him, does not reside mainly in its creeds or sacraments, but in Jesus himself. Do you believe that the resurrected Lord Jesus 
is here with you right now. Will you believe that? As a believer, he is. He never looks away. He sees every sin. He sees every struggle. He never looks away. He sees every need, and he's always there to support, forgive, encourage, and comfort. He's, he's always here. It's, it's Christ-centered And then lastly, collaborative thinking. This all comes from the tense of a pronoun, the number of a pronoun. Now, most of you know I'm from Tennessee, which is where we, we, we speak proper English in Tennessee, um, and we, we use the word y'all, which is the plural for you. Most of the English language really stresses and strains on the, the you because you can be singular or plural. But in, in the South, we say, we're not going to mess with that. We just have y'all. It works. Paul's a good Southerner because y'all comes out in the original that it doesn't come out in the English. So let me show you what he's saying here and show you the collaborative corporate dimension of this. It's not done alone. You do it with your brothers and sisters around you. Verse 21, if indeed y'all have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to y'all's former life, it's plural, that you all lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that y'all become renewed in the spirit of y'all's mind. Isn't that wonderful? Just sounds better to the ear. The point is it's plural. God, through the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul to write this, is saying you don't do this alone. You all do it together. It's collaborative. It's corporate. This screams faithful ecclesiology, faithfulness to the local church, the priority of the local church. We change together. We change with each other. Each other. We change because of each other. Change in concert with each other. And it's not just coming and sitting and leaving. It's coming and sitting and being humble and teachable and vulnerable and exposing your life and, and, and correcting others. And, and we care about becoming, we'll see next time, holy and righteous. Let's back up and see this from some altitude. A renewed mind coordinates time and eternity through the values and decisions we make because of Christ. Does all this sound strangely familiar? Can I remind you of what you've probably already thought about? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, of your thinking, so that you may prove what God's will is, God's will is, the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 4.8, very similarly. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, good repute. If there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. 
Colossians 3. You've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the ta'ana, the above values, the above things, where Christ is. That's where he is. Not was. He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Christ himself, he's there. His values, his commands, his expectations, his comfort. Not on the things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him as glory. On the negative side, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 23 to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's trying to prevent the cross. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. There's the contrast. God's mind, God's interests, or man's interests. In Philippians 3, many false teachers and believers walk, of whom I've told you and tell you even weeping, they are enemies of Christ, the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Our core problem is not our sinful actions, but our outlook that gives birth to these actions. It's thinking, it's thinking, it's thinking. It's how we think, it's what we think. Thought always precedes action. Actions are always done based on values. Values are either controlled intuitively or controlled by the word of God. We said last week, you are your life's project. You are. You are your life's project. How's that project going for you? This is the New Testament equivalent of a verse passage almost all of you have memorized. Hear it in reference to Paul's words in Ephesians. Just hear it fresh. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord personally with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own, your own understanding. In all your ways and everything you do, acknowledge not what's right and wrong, acknowledge what? Him, Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. Oh, do you have a plan for growth? Do you have a strategy for life? Are you renewing your mind? Let me say it again. Renewing your mind means learning to see everything as God sees everything and responding in holiness and righteousness. In our next study, we'll be very specific about what that putting on of those new ways of thinking and those new behaviors specifically and strategically looks like.